Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Night Writer podcast. A podcast for all you insomniacs out there. I'm playing some music by Carlo Desuoldo. He was a 16th century Italian composer. And we are going to be talking all about him in the podcast today. I'm also trying very, very hard to drown out the sound of drilling coming from the neighbour's back garden behind me. There's nothing more awkward and annoying when you're trying to create a Italian 16th century ambience when there's people dropping massive pieces of scaffolding as loud as they can behind you. Anyway, I'm very pleased to introduce our special guest for this episode, Lucas Cantor. Now, Lucas is an Emmy award-winning composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist and speaker. He has worked in NBC's music department for the Olympic Games. He's won two Emmys for the Olympics, one in 2008 and another in 2012, which is when it came to London. Lucas co-produced Lord's cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which was on the Hunger Games Catching Fire soundtrack. He's written music for DreamWorks' Animation Spirit, Riding Free and for Cannon Busters, which are both on Netflix. He wrote the theme and background music for the LA Times podcast, The Real, and he also scored the A Rotten Holiday featuring Disney's Descendants. And this is just a few strings to his bow. I'm going to link his website in the description below if you want to check him out further. And he's also writing a book, which is in progress. And I'm very fortunate to have read an excerpt of a story, which may or may not make it into the book. But either way, it's made it into this podcast and we're both really excited to share it with everyone. Now, I should point out, it's a pretty dark story. I mean, we love it, but some might not realise how explicit it is. So I'm going to issue a disclaimer now. We talk about some graphic and pretty heavy stuff. So if you find yourself triggered by like murder and all that kind of stuff, then give this one a miss. But if you find all that stuff fascinating, then by all means, give us a like. You can follow us on uh, social media at NightWriterFM on Twitter and Instagram. We are going to be talking all about this guy. I'm just going to turn him up a bit. Gishwaldo, 16th century Italian composer. I'll link this song as well in the description below. This guy is one of a kind and we will be talking all about what happens when a musical genius, who seems to be quite ahead of his time, becomes a murderer and how it actually inspires some of his best work ever. Oh, those creatives. But I'll let Lucas tell you all about it. So may I present Lucas Cantor? Sweet dreams, everyone, and I will see you in the next one. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Night Writer podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined by a special guest, Lucas Cantor. Lucas, welcome to the Night Writer podcast. Thank you for having me. I deliberately did some spooky lighting for you. Yeah, I know. Thank you. And I've got a background just for you. So thank you. <laughs> um, you are a composer, um, a producer and a multi-instrumentalist, as I can see from your background. Um, mm-hmm. But also now you're an author and you're writing a story called The Prince of Venosa about a man called Carlo Gerswaldo. Gerswaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have to probably point out that when you, when we were exchanging emails and, um, we were talking about this guy, you were, you said, yeah, I'm writing a book, uh, a story about this musician who, you know, killed his, his wife and her lover. And I was just like, wow, okay, tell me more about this story. So please tell us more about this story. 
Well, so this is actually um, is an excerpt from a book that I'm writing about um, technology and the arts and the relationship between technology and the arts. And this story is in the book. Uh, you know, actually, this story might not end up being in the finished book. This story is currently in the draft of the book um, as a way to illustrate um, how the stories we tell about musicians affects how we enjoy their music. So, um, <clears throat> and that's why, uh, so I've actually been interested in Giswaldo's music for a long time. And uh, before I knew any of the details of his life, I really thought his music was interesting and strange because it is, uh, and anyone who's, everyone should just go listen to, you can just Google Carlo Gesualdo and you'll, you'll find some performances of his music, but it is from the, the 14th, uh, the, from the 15th century um, when the prevailing style was madrigals. This was really right before Monteverdi functionally invented opera. And uh, madrigals are just sort of sung poems, basically. And he was writing in a style harmonically that w would be like if you if you um, if you heard one of his pieces at a modern university, you would think, yeah, that's pretty cutting edge. Um, that, and that's <clears throat> you know it sounded it sounded um, it, it sounds modern even today. And so he was writing music and using harmonies that were uh, about three hundred years ahead of their time. They weren't revisited until the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, which is kind of like if you found a half-finished um, draft of Michael Jackson's Thriller in the papers of J.S. Bach. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Comparison. Yeah. Um, and so he grew up in a rich Italian family. Um, he was the second son, so his brother was set to inherit everything, um, and he thought he was going to spend his life in the church, like all second sons do. Yeah, so he was a he was a quiet. Um, I mean, Gesualdo was uh, like the way that he's painted in the in the history that I've read is he was he was just kind of always a creep, right? But he was gonna be, but he was gonna be fine because he was the second son, and they were just going to send him to seminary where he would just study and become a priest and live in Rome and do things the priests did, you know, write music and whatever. Yeah. Um, and he was he he just seemed like a like a very quiet type of guy who was really that was in interesting to him and he was um he was the uh nephew of uh charles borromeo who at that time was the was the um he was some sort of second to the pope he was a front runner to the pope he was the he was a cardinal of something or other and uh charles borromeo is now known as saint charles borromeo so um he you know so because Waldo was very connected in the Catholic yeah. Church and so he was in Rome and he was studying and he really um took an interest in music and was looking forward to this life of quiet contemplation and musical you know um musical exploration and then his older brother died leaving him the sole heir to the uh Gizwaldo fortune in the town of Venosa and so he immediately had to marry so Gizwaldo I would imagine was somewhat charming in his, you know, weird, creepy way. Um, like think, you know, Batman villain, maybe. Um, and uh, so he, um, he married uh, a woman named Maria, uh, uh, Maria de Avila, I'm forgetting her title. Abola. Yeah, there we go. So um, we'll just call her Maria. So yeah. he married uh, a woman named Maria, also from a, from a noble family, also uh, very wealthy. And she was like, um, 
she was a famed beauty of the day, like a Marilyn Monroe, like everybody knew of her and how beautiful she was. And Giswaldo, I guess, had a sufficient fortune and was sufficiently charming to marry her. Um, and they moved to, uh, to Milan, is that right? Um, they, they moved to one of the Northern cities. Anyway, they moved up North, they moved to a villa and uh, like a little apartment and they uh, hated being married, basically. <laughs> they didn't really like each other. You know, it was probably an arranged marriage. And uh, Giswaldo spent all of his time composing and was just working on music. And she, Maria, was very outgoing. And Giswaldo would descend for, you know, a few minutes, say a few weird things, and then go back to his office. And so she, you know, she hated it. And she became friends, you know, you need a, you know, you know how it is. You need a, you need a friend who shares your interests. So she became friends with uh, uh, Duke Francisco, who was basically her counterpart, like famed for his Casanova-esque um, attractiveness. And they became buddies and just sort of social acquaintances. They would go to parties together, so on and so forth. And eventually, Gesualdo started to suspect them of being lovers. And so he concocted this strange plot where he arranged with a friend of his to go hunting, but then he told his servant to leave his door open, um, uh, to leave his door unlocked. So he left the house for a few minutes and this is the old, like, Oh, I forgot my purse. And then you come home from work. Um, and so he forgot. So he arranged, he arranged this and then he goes out for an hour or so. And then he comes back with his friend, sneaks in through the open door and uh, hears the sounds of a uh, passionate lovemaking coming from his bedroom, which um, so he sneaks up there, there are, uh, you know, daggers drawn and um and they they go into they burst into the bedchamber and they see maria naked and francisco de carafa for some reason that has yet to be explained wearing her nightgown right um, okay. yes and they had they had clearly just uh finished um you know the the act and um so gizwaldo and his friend rush in and gizwaldo um Gisualdo's friend ran the duke through with his rapier and Gisualdo stabbed his wife with a dagger um, to the point where her corpse was just completely mangled. Um, so then they're about to, um, on their way out the door, you know, they've, they've, killed these, they've killed these people and on their way out the door, Gisualdo looks to his friend and says, I don't believe she's really dead. And this is where it gets really weird. Then he ran back inside and just started stabbing at his wife's mangled corpse until his friend pulled him off and then Giswaldo took the bodies of the two lovers and brought them to the street so that they could be further defiled by rats and there is I didn't include this in the story because it's too weird but there is an apocryphal story um, of a passing weird monk who um, was caught by authorities interfering with the body of uh, Maria after she had been on the street for some time so this is um yeah, anyway, that, that detail is very okay. odd, but that, that happened. <laughs> yeah. um, so this was, all, this was all horrible, and, um, you know, Gisualdo went from being a weirdo to a murderer, but um, then there was the, the issue of the child, because they had an infant son, and Gisualdo was now not sure whether the infant son was his or was the issue of his, uh, of his rival. And so the story goes, and this is... Again, this is, this is probably apocryphal, but this is what, uh, what is understood, is that he hung the boy from a banister, um, like in a cradle, 
and played his music for him until the kid died. So he basically sat there playing music until his infant son starved to death um, and then just left him there. Starved. So, starved. Yeah, I, I think starved because there's, he didn't, he didn't want to strangle him, but he also didn't want to, but he also couldn't let him live because he would grow up to seek vendetta. So, yeah. um, so then, um, Gesualdo, uh, fled town cause he was, um, or they were in, um, you know, they were in the city at this point and he went to his country estate, to his ancestral home of Gesualdo, uh, of, uh, Venosa. Um, and, uh, the reason that he did this was not because he had broken the law because he actually caught his wife and his lover in flagrante delicto. And so in the 15th century, it's perfectly, it's perfectly legal to murder your wife if you catch her cheating on you. So he hadn't broken the law, but what he feared was reprisal from her relatives. So he went to his castle and he cut down the trees all around, he cut down the forest around his castle so he could see an approaching army. Um, and he waited there and for, for months, but they never came. So, and this is the point at which Gizwaldo's story gets really interesting. <laughs> um, so after a few months of waiting for uh, his ex or his murdered wife's family to avenge, to avenge uh, her, they never showed up. And one of the reasons that he was unhappy with her and unhappy where they lived was that uh, there weren't really great musicians for him to, for him to um, write for. And so he moved to another uh, city in Italy that was famous for having a trio of amazing vocalists. And he befriended the Duke uh, there and he remarried. And this is when his music career really started to take off. So, so even the other inconvenience, you know, the first marriage, the inconvenience, all about, you know, this, this one of my career is going to be made now. <laughs> it's like, so on the one hand, access to good musicians is important. On the other hand, the thing that changed in his music was that his music got really weird because he was haunted by, um, he was haunted by demons. And he wrote a, uh, a series of madrigals. Um, he, he composed a book of madrigals, the, um, the, uh, the most famous of which, the one that still survives, uh, they, they all survive, but the most famous one is called Moro Lasso. And it's, um, it's a very uh, dark and extremely chromatic, and this is the one that you'll find probably the most easily if you Google Gizwaldo. Uh It's called Moro Lasso again. Well, and on your um, manuscript, on the um, where you can scan it, and then it goes on mm -hmm. YouTube. Yeah, because when you sent me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I listened. Yep, that's to that's the one. It is quite haunting. Yeah. It's very haunting, and I'll read you the um, the text. So he he also we don't know for sure, but we it's it's highly likely that he wrote the libretto. And this is, um, this is what it says. It says, I die, alas, in my suffering. And she who could give me life, alas, kills me and will not help me. Oh, sorrowful fate. She who could give me life also gives me death. So, you know, that's pretty creepy. It's clear that he was quite kind of inspired by his past, so to speak. Or, yeah, and this was his most famous work that he wrote, you know, after he had murdered his wife. And so what I find interesting about Gisualdo and the reason that I uh, am planning to include him in, in this book is that without the story, so th there were worse murders that we've forgotten, you know, and there has been also, um, you know, weirder music that we've forgotten. But it's the combination of the murders and the fact that this guy's music was so weird that has made him uh, still available to us almost 600 years later. So 
it's um it's interesting how the the narrative of this composer's life also um en enhances the uh the life of his of his work well yeah because what, when you were saying about you know can you um you wanted to explore uh, people's uh, musicians past and their backstory and how that connects their music i was thinking that when i listened to his song i was actually because i'd already known his story i read the story and i'm thinking in my head oh well the reason why it sounds so haunting is because he did all these things and he's probably a really haunted person anyway um do you know i mean do you wanted to ever wanted to explore why he did what he did to his wife well there's a, a couple things there so first of all i listened to gizwaldo's music without knowing this story and my first thought was that this guy's insane <laughs> so <laughs> you know just listening to it in the context of you know knowing that it was from the 15th century I just thought this guy was out of his mind. Like this was this was music from another time, and it would sound weird today. And it was it was, but it, but it was, it was very well done. It was I mean it's good. It's re, it's good music. You know you can't take away from him the fact that he is a he is an excellent artist, despite the fact that he was a horrible human being. Um, Aren't they and, all? <laughs> what's that? They all. <laughs> Most of them. No, I mean, I, I make the, the comparison I make uh, is, um, th th I mean, there are a couple of different, uh, there, there are many different comparisons in, like, in contemporary society. And, uh, you know, I'll use an older one, which is Wagner. Wagner was a, like, known, loud, out and proud anti-Semite who just hated Jews. And he was Hitler's favorite composer. Um, his, there's a, uh, there's a, a story of, um, Wagner's granddaughter meeting Hitler in person and saying to Hitler, we've been waiting for you when he was, yeah, I know. And, yeah. but you can't listen to Wagner's music and deny that he was a genius. Yeah. Cause he, he just was, you know? So, um, and you could say that about like, uh, you know, even a lot of the, you know, the artists that are, um, artists and producers and, you know, whoever that have, uh, been caught up in scandals today, like, it doesn't mean that those movies weren't good. They're just horrible people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How do you separate um, the person is what people are trying to. Yeah. Them. I mean, the, the other day, like <clears throat> the other day I rewatched, um, uh, Goodwill hunting and like, that's a, it's an amazing movie. It's a fantastic movie, but like, I forgot that Harvey Weinstein produced that movie. <laughs> I mean, if I mean, <laughs> you know, like, we won't be able to watch any movies in Hollywood. <laughs> in every, right. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So, so there is one in there in our society especially we are um, encouraged to view someone's personality and someone's life and their art as one as one thing because the life is sort of a, the marketing tool to get to the art because you want to feel like you know the artist that's just how our society is but um but those two things are are not always they're just not always the same you know like, I feel like Dolly Parton probably is like an upbeat, nice, wise, talented person in person and on stage. I think that probably is just how she is all the time. But not every artist is like that. Some artists are brilliant when they're doing their art and are tortured human beings when they're not. And um, I wouldn't want to sacrifice the art of those people, but I also don't condone their behavior. So I don't know where that, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know where that line is. Yeah. Um, but it's a little easier when you're talking about Giswaldo because giswaldo has been dead for 500 years. Yeah. So... Um, and, and I mean, at the time, he was never actually arrested because he couldn't. He did, according to the law, he didn't do anything wrong. He never. He didn't break the law. He wasn't a criminal. You know, it was legal to kill your cheating wife. Yeah. Um. And, you know, yeah. and I certainly, I certainly don't. 
you know, it's it's not it's not hard to say that that's a, obviously a terrible law, but that was the law at the time. Yeah, um, and also he drove. To, he fled to his castle and chopped down all of his trees. What did he think was going to happen if his if his wife or his in law <coughs> suddenly sent an army over there? What was he actually planning to do? Well, they, they would have. Um, I think they would have been justified in killing him, probably. Yeah. Because, um, and I don't know if there was a statute of limitations on vendetta or something, but um, there was, you know, that was just part of the, the honor culture of, um, of that, of the, you know, Renaissance Italy was that, you know, it would, it wasn't, it wasn't unexpected. You know, it wasn't unheard of that they would come take revenge on him. I guess they just thought, they just thought better of it. Um, and I think that there is probably, there's probably some chauvinism there because, um, you know, she dishonored the family by cheating. Yeah. So, you know, they, they well, well, I'm sure they loved her. They, they probably realized that legally and under the, the code of the times, they didn't really have a leg to stand on, even yeah. though he had killed her. So, I mean, and that, that's just a guess. And there's, there's scholars who I'm sure have figured this out. But I, that's, my guess is that they, they just didn't feel like, you know, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's, it's like uncomfortable for me to talk about it in this way, frankly. Yeah. But it's... um. But I think that's what it was, was that, you know, the morality and the legal um, details of that time were just, you know, abhorrent to us, but they were what they were at the time. Yeah. Um, but so another interesting life that Gesualdo has led is as a bit of a cult figure. So in his music was forgotten for a while and was revived by uh, 20th century composers and has really seen a renaissance in the 20th century or had seen a renaissance in the 20th century i sometimes forget that we're no longer in that century um, but his his uh his music really saw a renaissance in the 20th century and one of the um historians who wrote about him started to believe that he was gizwaldo's reincarnation yeah i remember you told me this the email and i remember thinking because this story can't get crazy enough <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's um and i as a as an artist and a composer and a researcher and a writer i actually completely understand this that's what's that's what's scary about it is that he because gizwaldo was so disturbed but also so brilliant and also so ahead of his time it is easy to view him as a cult figure and he is the kind of person that every young man who seriously embarks on the arts and maybe every young woman, but I will speak for every young man who seriously embarks on the arts, like secretly kind of views himself as like a tortured genius. He was a true tortured, dark genius. And um, I would not trade my life for his for a billion dollars, but there is a, you know, maybe when I was a teenager, I would have thought that he was a lot cooler than he is. And I actually reading, I have two young boys now and I have all these books about Gisualdo in my house. And I think that I don't want to like, I don't want to show them to them until they're older. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. until they're like in, like until they've like graduated from college. Yeah. Because I, I think that this story, I think this story is dangerous to young people yeah. um, because it's, he's so compelling. And the, you know, this is, I do encourage anyone listening to this to also listen to the music because and maybe you can put some in the, in the uh, maybe you can edit some into the video stream here. Um, 
because it's it's haunting and it's it's haunting and it's from it sounds like it's from another time but also kind of from today and that makes him a uh that makes him a really scary compelling um a scary and compelling character like if you told me if we found out later that time travel was possible and Giswaldo was a time traveler who got stuck in renaissance italy i would 100 percent believe that um you know but uh it's because he just he, he just seemed like a man out of his time, which is how, you know, how you feel if you're a tortured young artist. You feel like you're not in the right place or in the right time and that no one understands you. But Gisualdo truly was someone that no one really understood. So this historian, did he genuinely believe that he was, he was Gisualdo or was he, or did he just feel so connected? To <clears throat> no, he like went to, he went to an asylum in the UK. I mean, he, it, it like pretty much ended his career. So, um, and I haven't read enough of his work, but he was uh, also a composer and, you know, was, was prone to psychological issues before he started studying Gisualdo. So it wasn't like, you know, just simply reading the story of Gisualdo drove him insane. I think he was already going down the road of, uh, you know, schizophrenia or, um, you know, dissociative, whatever, so some sort of disorder. And, and this story pushed him over the edge. Um, or became a really convenient vehicle for him. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know how this stuff works, but um, but yeah, there's a and there's I mean there are stories of people thinking that they're the reincarnation of Gisualdo. The um, the home of Gisualdo is a is like a macabre tourist attraction for a certain type of person. Uh, Warner Herzog made a movie about Gisualdo, like made a short documentary about um, the house of Gisualdo and the um, he does have a he has some living heirs who are, you know, royal in Italy still, uh, or living descendants, I should say. Yeah, yeah, you know, 15th cousins or whatever, but they're, um, they are uh, Gisualdo's bloodline. They, <clears throat> they say that they're, um, there is a bed that they say, um, in, this, is, this is in the Warner Herzog documentary, it is, um, but, but they, they show a bed that, they, that this um, Gisualdo descendant says was the bed oh, that he murdered his wife in, yeah. Um, and that they, they still have it. And um, there's a, and there's a, in the Warner Herzog movie, there's a scene in, a, in an asylum in the city where Gisualdo's, the Gisualdo's home was, uh, where the, the head of the asylum says, um, I have several men here who believe that they're the reincarnation of Gisualdo. And I can't, I can't let them meet each other. So I like, I have to keep them on separate parts of the ground. Um, and, uh, yeah, and his you know his his home is still standing, um, and so there is this uh, there there are people who go in and will sing his music in his home. It's uh. So who owns the estate now? Because Waldo estate is it his family still, and they've let them in. I no, I don't know if it's. I, I think it's a privately owned building. Uh, I mean the 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 so the, the apart. I'm talking about the apartment where he murdered. Uh, Maria. So the the Venosa. I, I don't. I've never been to Venosa. I I, th I think it's in Tuscany somewhere. I, I I'm, I'm pulling that out of my uh, uh, posterior. And so I've never. Um. I don't know where it is, but I. Uh, and I don't know if it's still called that or still a town. But the the site is uh, his apartment. Okay. And yeah. his castle, I presume, has probably been in ruins or that where he fled. Say that again. His, his what? His um ancestral home. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I don't. I don't know. You know where, where the castle is. But next time I go to Italy, I'm certainly going to visit. I was. I was in Italy a few years ago, but I. I didn't have time to sort of do a Gisualdo tour. But I'm going to do it now. Yeah. Good luck with 
did um did, yeah i think i got yeah you know i'll just go take some pictures because <laughs> Waldo, did he um actually play his music in public or did he just compose and other people played it oh yeah he was popular um like he was he we would he would be a footnote in music history regardless mm -hmm. um you know if he hadn't killed his wife we would still remember his music because um uh it's but but not but i probably wouldn't have heard of it even you know like renaissance scholars would remember his music i i might have, i mean I, you know i'm a musician i might have come across it but um it would not have it would not have generated the interest that it has generated now because it was it was simply atypical music of the period but <clears throat> it wasn't um you know it wasn't so outside the norm that um that it was it, it wasn't very popular. How, how do I put it? Like he was popular, but he wasn't like, um, he wasn't uh, like Monteverdi popular. So like Monteverdi, so here, here's a good example. So Monteverdi and Gesualdo were pretty close contemporaries. They were around at the same time. They were in Italy at the same time. And they were both working with the source material of madrigals, right? That's kind of what the popular thing was at the time. And Monteverdi, uh, or I'll start with Gisualdo. Gisualdo thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these madrigals and uh, instead of using these simple harmonies uh, that we've been doing for the last several hundred years, I'm going to make the harmonies and these chromatic lines just whacked out. And I'm going to make this beautiful, crazy out to lunch sound. And he did that and the public was not quite ready for it. He had a little bit of a, you know, a following, but, you know, and people thought... It was the kind of thing that, like, I don't know if you, if, if anyone's been to college and been to, like, a conservatory concert, I think that Gisualdo's music was approached like, okay, I, I, that was interesting. I don't know if it was something I want to listen to, but that's because the, the stuff was really out, it was just out there. Like, today it sounds a little bit more tame to us. Um, so Gisualdo played with the harmony, um, but left pretty much all the elder elements of the madrigal intact. Monteverdi pretty much kept the harmony of madrigals the same, um, but he made uh, elaborate changes in the staging of these concerts. He uh, had one voice singing. In a madrigal, the entire ensemble is singing as one voice. Um, but Monteverdi thought, you know what, let's have some of these voices supporting and one of these voices singing a main melody. And, um, and, he th and Monteverdi also said, let me um, increase the size of the accompaniment. So instead of having just a... Um, you know, a harpsichord or something, um, and you know, or an octet. I'm going to get a bigger um, group of musicians. What do I call it? Uh, well, let's see. They'll sit down under the stage in that area that we call the orchestra. So let's just call them the orchestra. All right. So we'll get a larger group of musicians and call it an orchestra, and um, we'll tell a story. And so what Monteverdi did was change basically every aspect of the madrigal except for the harmony, and he created what we now know as opera by doing this. Wow. So, yeah. um, Montever yeah. So they were both looking, they were both searching for the same thing, but they just searched in different directions and one of them became wildly popular and one of them became a musical anachronism that we, that is known to scholars today. But is also a cult figure too. So, say that again? Also a cult figure too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think anybody's ever gone insane thinking they were Monteverdi. No. Um, but but uh but you know he also wrote you know th there's also i mean you could probably go to a major concert hall somewhere in the world and see a monteverdi opera at any given time you're, you're you'll be hard pressed to find a gisualdo concert yeah although i mean when you kind of told me about the story and then when i was reading it 
I just I'm quite drawn to the humanity and the characters of it, um, Gaswaldo in particular. Um, because when I was reading it, I was just thought, oh wow, that escalated really quickly because there was no, he never really showed any affection towards his wife. He wasn't said to get madly in love with her. I think he did what he did. It was wasn't really so much out of jealousy, it was just anger at being betrayed and being made to look a fool of. Um I was kind of it was it sort of came out of nowhere. There was no he never because he he was very distant from his family. And then it just it just kind of exploded and then yeah I was just really interested in that kind of side of it yeah I mean you know he might have been Monteverdi with the right partner yeah. you know like he might have he might have yeah, gone I mean like imagine with like support you know because the, the level of I mean I'm a I have a I have a wonderful loving and supportive wife and it is like it makes my job is still very hard but it it is easier because I, I know I've got that support and you know all of that but i would have to be so much better a musician and so much more determined to be doing what i'm doing in the face of a horrible relationship yeah does that make sense that yeah. like the like that he you know he must he was he, he was such a genius that like despite the fact that everything in his life was horrible to him i think he was still able to create and you know i can barely pull it together to do my best work and I have all the support and the, you know, I've got, I've got the easiest sort of artistic life you can imagine. And I still find it difficult. And he had none of that. And, um, and you know, it's possible, I mean, this is, this is just speculation, but it's, it's possible that he was gay too. And like that maybe, you know, he would have just been better off with the right partner. Um, and I just say that because he was, you know, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. that's not, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, even though just a bit that scene with the kid and the banister and him just playing his music, that's just really insidious and really sinister to think that and then plan to do that. Um, even if he thought it wasn't his child or not, there was a possibility that it actually was his child. And why, and just why would you do something so cruel like that? I guess we're looking at it in terms of now, but back then, I don't know. Do you have the same? Yeah, well, it's like it's like the nicest way to murder a child if you don't want to do it in what is really the nicest way, which is to do it in the fastest way. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I like I mean, and and I think that there is also like probably some psychological and maybe some legal aspect to like he didn't technically kill the child. He just exactly. he arranged for the child to be killed. So um, you know that it wasn't. <clears throat> legal what he did it was just he could have just been chalked down to neglect or something or you know in those days infant mortality was you know it was, it was yeah i mean yeah i guess to be fair like you know the chances that child was going to grow up are pretty low anyway yeah but um but the but it's still um it's still horrifying and um you know i mean i, I can't yeah i mean that's the part of the story that really i don't think i actually included that did i, I don't know if i like that might not make the book it's too creepy like you know, I, like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, would you consider writing it as a part of fiction, as in, as from Jaswalda's point of view, or from his wife's point of view, or the Duke's point of view, or just... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really write fiction. I, I, and, and this is, this is, like, so this is a very small part of my book, and I just, like, thought that it would be awesome <laughs> to, on your podcast, but it is not, um, I'm not, uh, like, I, I love the story of this, but, you know, the, the way that I write, what I try to do is collect 
as many stories like this as possible and use them to illustrate a point about, you know, reality rather than, um, rather than writing the stories for their own sake. But yeah, I think this is like, I, I can't believe that nobody has made this movie. I can't believe that, uh, you know, this isn't like an HBO show, you know, but. Because that's what I like, uh, this is what I do on my podcast, I just talk all about like urban legends, fairy tales, the meaning behind fairy tales. And a lot of that is, can be traced back to, you know, medieval times in Europe, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm surprised that, you know, fairy tale was made out of this guy. I'm sure it probably there might be somewhere if we dig hard enough, but yeah, it just it does seem very. Um, I don't know if I want to know the fairy tale based on Giswaldo. <laughs> well, all fairy tales are really dark. All the origin stories are really, really dark. So um, yeah, you re I'm reading them like all the Rapunzels and Snow Whites, like Poison, and they knock their kids in towers. It's just oh, yeah. So this is like but yeah, I have a I, I have a. I have a little uh, correspondence going with, a, I, I won't name him because I don't want to call him out, but uh, a, um, a scholar who specializes in, in this period in Italy and has written a book about uh, one of the notable figures from this period that is like this thick. It is, this is a man who knows basically every detail of what was going on in Italy during the Renaissance, and he hadn't really heard of Gisualdo. He had heard about him in passing. Like, he knew that he was a composer who lived during that time, but he hadn't heard this story. So... Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not widely known, but, but it is, you know, people have written books on it. Um, and I suppose finally, uh, what do you hope that people will take from his story and the story that you're writing about him? In the context of my book, the, the entire purpose of sharing the story of Giswaldo is to illustrate how the, the narrative surrounding music helps create um, a life and a space for the music to exist and how no music exists in a vacuum. And if it did exist in a vacuum, you probably wouldn't enjoy it as much. So that's, that's, that's the whole purpose. There, there's no moral purpose to me, including Giswaldo. I, I frankly put it in the book because it's so shocking that I, you know, I just think if, when you're reading a book about like um, uh, philosophy and art and all these ethereal concepts, I think it's nice to have, a good old down-to-earth murder every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, everyone needs a good old murder. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'll put all your links and everything um, in the description below so everyone can um, check out. Um, and let us know about like, when the book's going to be released. Is there a date or is it still a work in progress? I'm still working on it. So I am right now, um, the proposal is out. It's, um, you know, I, my agent is shopping it. We expect to hear back pretty soon. And hopefully I'll have a manuscript in by next year. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled. It's going to, it's going to be a little while. I, I would say fall of 2022 would be the absolute earliest that it would come out. Okay. Um, and, uh, but hope, but hopefully it'll come out after their pandemic is over and I'll do a little book tour and everyone who's watching this week, I'll come to your city and we can hang out. What's that? I'm glad to have interviewed you first, been one of the first to interview you before you go on tour. Yeah, I don't talk about the book that much. So this, this is probably my first interview about the book. So thank you. Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And um, yeah, keep, I, I also write music, which is, you know, what my main job is. But uh, if anyone wants to know what I'm up to, uh, Lucas D. Cantor on Instagram is the easiest way to just, you know, find me and connect with me and my website is lucascantormusic.com yeah i'll put those links as well in the description as well in the youtube video sweet and thank you so much
Um, Thank you. Bye, everyone. I'll see you in the next one.